Welcome back to Talking PFAS Podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. Today's episode is the launch of season six, and I want to give a big thank you to everybody who continually listens to Talking PFAS Podcast and for sending me your emails on how much you enjoy it. If you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to have a binge, as the content, of course, is still very relevant today. As attention, regulation, and litigation regarding PFAS chemicals continues to accelerate. In the Talking PFAS episode today, we'll be taking a closer look at what US EPA is doing regarding their proposed PFAS drinking water regulation. And it's important to note that I'll be giving an overview from their overview so for you to get the full context of what they're doing. I strongly encourage you to look at their website Also, I really encourage you to look at their two webinars. One was on the 16th of March and one was on the 29th of March. They're excellent. They'll give you all the information that you need, whether you are somebody affected by PFAS contamination or responsible to keep it out of drinking water or responsible to clean it up. And also they go into great detail in parts of these webinars, but for the most part, they're very easy to understand. Just need to mention in the intro, the proposed PFAS National Primary Drinking Water Regulation that US EPA has proposed is not an enforceable regulation yet, as some information online and some news articles have reported that it is. It is simply a proposal at this point. Today I'm going to share some key information from the US EPA webinars on these proposed changes to drinking water regulation and I'll put a link in my show notes. And also the US EPA is running a virtual public hearing on May 4 and they're asking people to register and submit comments. They will also take oral comments and written comments for this public hearing on May 4. Throughout today's discussion, I'm always talking about US EPA if I just say the word EPA, just for clarification. I'll also be sharing some of my interview with Boston attorney John Gardella from CMBG3 Law. This is a repeat from episode 33, but I'll not be publishing the whole of episode 33. But as we were discussing all of these changes, it's relevant to today's episode just to give people who are concerned about the legal ramification of these proposed changes. So I will be replaying it for the benefit of those listeners that are interested in litigation. So why is the US EPA proposing these drinking water regulations regarding PFAS? As they stated in the webinar, they're taking this action because safe drinking water is fundamental to healthy people and thriving communities. EPA stated, we rely on water from the moment we wake up and make a cup of coffee to when we brush our teeth at night. Every person should have access to clean, safe drinking water. That is why EPA is acting now to protect people's drinking water from PFAS contamination. As they stated in the webinar, the science is clear. Long-term exposure to certain PFAS is linked to significant health risks. They continue to quote, people can be exposed to PFAS in a number of ways and when their drinking water is contaminated with PFAS, it can be a significant portion of a person's total PFAS exposure. This is very important to note. Based on EPA's evaluation of current best available science, PFAS and PFOS are found to be likely human carcinogens. Commenters 
on the proposed rule have until May 30th this year, 2023, to provide comments to the agency on the proposed rule. Comments must be submitted to the public docket by May 30th for consideration. So EPA is proposing a national primary drinking water regulation to establish legal enforceable levels called Maximum Contaminant Levels, MCLs for short. Under the Safe Drinking Water Act, EPA has the authority to set enforceable national primary drinking water regulations for drinking water contaminants and require monitoring of public water supplies. To date, EPA has regulated more than 90 drinking water contaminants, but has not established national drinking water regulations for any PFAS. Now, the agency is developing a proposed national primary drinking water regulation for PFOS and PFOA and additional certain other PFAS. The EPA is also considering regulatory actions to address groups of PFAS. The agency expects to issue a, a final drinking water regulation by the end of 2023 after considering public comments on the proposal. I'm now going to play a portion of my interview with Boston attorney John Gardella from episode 33 and I will add in some more relevant US EPA information around this including the impacts that the new mandatory drinking water limits, if passed, will have on public water system providers. Now, Boston attorney John Gardella has been a regular guest on the Talking PFAS podcast. It's always a great, open and easy to understand conversation with him. He is well versed on PFAS and writes frequently in the National Law Review and you can catch up on his multiple PFAS articles there. Now, this portion of my interview with John Gardella was recorded in March 2022 and it was published in April 2022. Uh, John, it's been a while since we had a PFAS discussion and I'm wondering if you could please tell our listeners what are some of the big issues in the US right now regarding PFAS? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, there's been a lot since you and I last talked, Kayleen, but, um, you know, I guess I can list list off a couple of the biggest ones. Um, the first I would say is is the one that everybody in the US is watching. I'm not sure when you and I last spoke, if the EPA had released what it's calling its PFAS roadmap, a 20-page document outlining how it's going to enforce and take steps to regulate PFAS. When did EPA release that? That was at the end of October of 2021. On October 18, 2021, EPA Administrator Michael Reagan announced the agency's PFAS strategic roadmap, laying out a whole-of-agency approach to addressing PFAS. The roadmap sets timelines by which EPA plans to take specific actions and commits to bolder new policies to safeguard public health, protect the environment, and hold polluters accountable. I asked John if the US EPA's PFAS strategic roadmap was significant. There's a lot of significance. I would say three things about it. First of all, it's the first time in EPA history, really, that it's given such a detailed and public disclosure of how it intends to address many, many issues related to PFAS and pollution and human health. And they focus on many different aspects of possible PFAS pollution. Drinking water was at the forefront of what they're talking about, but they also address air pollution and groundwater pollution and wastewater discharge. So they really took an all-encompassing approach in detailing some of the things that they intend to do. Now, of course, 
course, the thing in the U.S., and I know overseas as well, that many people are, are watching is developments related to EPA action on drinking water in the United States. They put a timetable on when they intend to release enforceable regulations for certain types of PFAS in drinking water, which we currently do not have at the federal level in the United States. There are a number of states that have enacted their own enforceable regulations, but those are in the states themselves. Second one I was going to mention was the intent of the EPA in the fall of this year, 2022, to propose a drinking water standard for certain types of PFAS. And their intent is to make the rule final. In other words, it's in law and it's enforceable by the EPA by the fall of next year. So by this fall, we will know what their intent is, and then they have to go through a required process where they open up their proposal to public comment. And so they're opening that up for one year, and they intend to have by the fall of 2023 a drinking water standard in the United States for all states, which would be enormous. The third thing is that the EPA intends to designate at least two types of PFAS, the PFOA and the PFOS, as what are called hazardous substances under a specific law in the United States. It's called the Superfund Law. In brief, what that is, is essentially if the EPA designates a portion of land in the United States or a riverway as a quote-unquote Superfund site, it has the authority and the power under the law to go after parties of any kind that it believes contributed to the pollution in the, quote, Superfund site. So they can only do that, though, if the chemicals that they're trying to clean up are listed under the Superfund law as hazardous substances. Right now, no PFAS listed as hazardous substances. I think in one of your articles, I think you talk about the cost can be from hundreds to thousands to actually millions of dollars. Is that right? Easily. You know, there are hundreds of Superfund sites in the country already not related to PFAS, and they can be up to hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup costs. Certainly, and they can take decades to clean. What I understand, if I've read your articles correctly, in the National Law Review, which you have written many, many articles on PFAS, from my understanding, with the Superfund law and the EPA being able to go after the polluters, it's retrospective, isn't it? How far back can they go? Like if somebody contributed to the PFAS problem 20 years ago, can they go back that far or is there a limit? Uh, No, they can go back as far as they have information that there was a company or party polluting for the particular substance that they're pursuing. There's really no limit. If someone has sold a site, you know, they, they maybe were a previous user of PFAS or manufacturer of PFAS and they're no longer the owner and they've sold it, would it be the new owner who is responsible or their previous owner or both? Both, potentially both. Certainly, I think if the old owner was polluting PFAS in some way, that the EPA would certainly pursue that owner. Okay, and what do you think the significance of the EPA when they set those drinking water regulations? What do you think the significance of that might be for any lawsuits regarding PFAS? Say, for instance, PFOA and PFOS are listed as hazardous. Would you see a huge amount of lawsuits rolling in regarding PFAS, if that happens? I believe so, yes. And especially not just the drinking water bond, but the other one, the Superfund law that I mentioned, that's really the one that targets most directly many types of environmental pollution, not just water, but land as well, land pollution. So when both happen, which I do believe that they will both happen, yes, lawsuits in the United States related to PFAS are going to skyrocket. 
they're going to skyrocket. Yeah. And that would be anything from personal injury claims to breaches of the consumer laws to property losses. Is that what you would see would be the main allegations? Yes. So the EPA ones will more directly be lawsuits or actions asking for the costs for the cleanup, which would be enormous costs. But the lawsuits that will be brought by the citizens thereafter would, as you said, Kayleen, also sort of piggyback off of that. And the citizens will also say, well, the EPA may not be focused on this particular area of land or this water source, but we are. This is important to our local community. And they could file lawsuits along the lines of what I just mentioned. The personal injury aspect of it is going to take a little bit more time. The first wave, I think, is going to need more of these pollution claims, but the personal injury will follow. What everybody is waiting for on the plaintiff's attorney side is definitive statements from not only the EPA, but other world organizations, such as the WHO, for example, is one of them, that certain types of PFAS are directly linked to adverse human health effects. Some of that exists, but they also need the scientific literature to really back it up. And right now, at least in the United States, there's still literature going both ways on this. Yes, that's true, even in Australia as well. Just before we hear more of what EPA has said in their proposal about PFAS and human health effects, this is what an Australian Government Department of Health fact sheet says about health effects and PFAS exposure. This is in sharp contrast to what the US EPA now states about PFAS and health. The Australian Government fact sheet states this, and I quote, There is no current evidence that supports a substantial impact on an individual's health from PFAS exposure. A number of studies show a link between PFAS exposure and several health effects. However, there is limited or no evidence of human disease accompanying these health effects. They also go on to say, and I quote, Organisations that study toxic chemicals have concluded that it is not currently possible to identify any definitive diseases caused by PFAS due to problems with study design and contradictions in study results, end quote. However, this is what the EPA states about PFAS and health effects in their current proposal. And I quote, Current scientific research and available evidence have shown potential for harmful human health effects after being exposed. Examples here include effects on pregnant people and developing babies, immune effects that weaken the body's ability to fight disease, increased risk to certain types of cancers and liver effects, and elevated cholesterol levels which can increase your risk for heart attack and stroke. They continue to quote, EPA expects that if fully implemented, the rule will prevent thousands of deaths and reduce tens of thousands of serious PFAS attributable illnesses. Once final and fully implemented, the agency expects the rule will prevent tens of thousands of serious PFAS-related illnesses and deaths, end quote. This is quite strong language. And again, you can see the difference between the Australian fact sheet and this latest information from US EPA. Just to go into a little bit of brief detail, in the webinar, the EPA explained how the agency approached the standard setting process under the Safe Drinking Water Act. The Safe Drinking Water Act requires the agency to use the best available peer-reviewed science and supporting studies. 
EPA has consulted with the EPA Science Advisory Board and specifically consulted on a cancer risk assessment for PFOA and PFOS to ensure the agency is using the best available science and that the information underpinning their decisions is sound. EPA is proposing a likely cancer classification for both PFOA and PFOS. The Science Advisory Board was supportive of EPA's determination of likely to be carcinogenic for PFOA at the time of their review and recommended EPA to re-evaluate and strengthen the rationale for the determination for PFOS, which at the time was suggestive and has subsequently been updated to likely after further review. EPA found that for PFOS, there's evidence for liver and pancreatic cancer based on animal studies. And for PFOA, there's evidence for kidney, pancreatic and liver cancer based on animal and human studies. In their webinar, EPA mentioned a docket number and you can find the Science Advisory Board report there and also EPA's responses to it. Now, back to Boston attorney John Gardella. I just wanted to discuss one of your articles that you wrote in the National Law Review on February 28, 2022. And you talk about something I've not heard before. Prop 65 lists PFOA as carcinogen. For the benefit of listeners in Australia and people unfamiliar, could you give us a brief explanation of what Prop 65 is and the significance of this listing, basically? This is in California, right? Right. So Prop 65, it's actually Proposition 65. It's part of a an actual act that was passed in California back in 1986. But it's essentially a law that was intended to provide consumers with information, clear disclosures of information by consumer good manufacturers and suppliers regarding potentially cancer-causing agents and products or uh, agents in the products that could cause reproductive harm. And so what they were trying to do when they passed this law, the Prop 65 law, is to make manufacturers and suppliers place warnings on the products so that consumers could make informed decisions or educated decisions about whether they wanted to actually purchase the product before they got the product. So that was sort of the intent of it. And it is specific California, as you said, Kayleen. So it relates to California, but what I understand is even businesses that supply products to the state of California it would impact them. Is that correct? Yes. And even one step further, if, if you have a internet business and even if it doesn't directly supply to California yet, if there are consumers who are searching your website potentially for products that they may purchase and bring into California, your internet page or your company website also has requirements for placing warnings prior to the purchase by the consumer of that product. So it's really all-encompassing. The governing body in California that was given the power and authority to sort of oversee the Prop 65 issues is the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. It's often referred to in the United States as OEHA, O-E-H-H-A. I'm reading your article and it says that they added PFOA to the list of chemicals known to cause cancer. So this is different language to what we've seen before about probable 
or possible carcinogen, you know, to say that it's known to cause cancer. What do you make of that language and how significant is that in your opinion? Well, they based their finding, I know, on information that was available to them by something called the National Toxicology Program, which is sort of a program by the Federal Department of Health here in the United States. So they reviewed all of the scientific literature available to them, and their finding was based on everything they saw that they felt that PFOA was a carcinogen, and hence their listing of PFOA under Prop 65, as you mentioned. It's certainly something that's very significant, and I mentioned just a few moments ago what the plaintiff's bar in the United States is waiting for, more of these definitive statements from agencies that regulate chemicals and you know try and protect human health. I could absolutely see this one being one that's used in future lawsuits. OEHA is a respected agency. Its scientists are very well respected. And I can see it having influence on perhaps other states as well, although we'll have to see. Time will tell for that. In a statement by OEHA regarding why they determined that PFOA meets the criteria for listing under Prop 65, they refer to a 2020 National Toxicology Program technical report on the Toxicology and Carcinogenesis Studies of PFOA. OEHA made this determination after reviewing public comments on the proposed listing of PFOA. On March 19, 2021, OEHA issued a Notice of Intent to list PFOA under Proposition 65 as a chemical known to the state to cause cancer. This resulted in comments being received over a 45-day comment period. Five sets of comments were submitted and they were from 3M, the American Chemistry Council, the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners, the Environmental Working Group and from Australia, the Queensland Department of Environment and Science. These comments are very detailed and far too complex for me to summarise in today's episode. But they are available online and I'll put a link to those in the show notes. So that organisation is very respected with, within California, but also within the United States, would you, would you say? I would say it's respected. I wouldn't go as far to say as it's extremely influential, but it, it is a respected agency. And I would say even the EPA would consider the findings of OEHA in doing their large-scale assessment of PFOA as well. I would. John, just to clarify, this most recent news article that you wrote for the National Law Review talks about PFOA being listed as a carcinogen under Prop 65. But isn't it true that also PFOS has previously been listed as a substance that has a recognised reproductive harm by the state of California? That's correct. In, in 2017, both PFOA and PFOS were listed as chemicals that could cause reproductive harm. But uh, I'll even say in December of 2021, OEHA actually listed PFOS as a carcinogen under the Prop 65 laws. So both PFOA and PFOS are now listed in California as carcinogens and capable of causing reproductive harm. So in addition to the EPA action uh, under their roadmap, which is incredibly significant in the United States, that we've also seen a large uptick in uh, the cosmetics industry actually being targeted for lawsuits very specifically geared towards PFAS. John is about to discuss information from an article he wrote in the National Law Review on the 3rd of March 2022. 
In this article, he wrote, with studies underway, legislation pending that targets cosmetics and increasing media reporting on cosmetics concerns to human health, the cosmetics industry has a target on its back with respect to PFAS. That will have impacts on the industry's involvement in litigation. Back to John. They're very interesting. They're going after large cosmetic companies uh, that are global companies, in fact. And essentially what they're doing, there have been four lawsuits to date. They're all doing something very similar. They are alleging that the companies for many years have advertised and told consumers that the products are environmentally friendly, you know, all natural, uh, healthy, safe for human use, whatever catchphrases you want to use. However, certain of the products made by these cosmetics companies contain certain types of PFAS, and therefore these lawsuits are all alleging that those statements to the public were false and misleading and constitute what's called consumer fraud. It's significant because it's really taken place within a three-month time span. Four lawsuits against four cosmetic giants in three months is significant news. If finalised, the National Primary Drinking Water Regulation proposal will regulate PFOA and PFOS as individual contaminants and will regulate four other PFAS, and those are PFNA, PFHXS, PFBS and HFPO dimer acid, which is sometimes referred to as the Gen X chemicals. It's important to note that EPA will regulate those four chemicals as a mixture. I will point out just a couple of quick things. There's a difference between the maximum contaminant level goals, MCGL, which the EPA has set at zero for PFOA and PFOS, and the maximum contaminant level, which is what the EPA is proposing to change. So the EPA sets the maximum contaminant level as close as feasible to the maximum contaminant level goal. Based on EPA's evaluation of current best available science, PFOA and PFOS are found to be likely human carcinogens. So the proposed health goals are zero for both PFOA and PFOS. So these are the maximum contaminant level goals. EPA is proposing a legally enforceable MCL, the maximum contaminant level, at four parts per trillion each for PFOA and PFOS. Now, the other four compounds, the proposed maximum contaminant level goal and maximum contaminant level are based on a hazard index approach. Now, this is far too complex to explain in the podcast today, but they give great detail about this, including graphics in their webinar. So I encourage you to have a look at that webinar. Now, to assist people in the calculation of these hazard index values, the EPA is developing a calculator tool to easily determine your hazard index result. So stay tuned for that. So what will be the impacts for public water systems? The US EPA expects that the roughly 66,000 public water systems in the US will be subject to the rule. And between 3,400 to 6,300 systems are expected to exceed one or more of the proposed maximum contaminant levels. EPA state, and I quote, when finalised, 
This rule will result in significantly less PFAS in drinking water across the United States. We understand that reducing PFAS in drinking water will likely require investments in water infrastructure, and we recognise this can be a concern for many. At the federal level, EPA has been making unprecedented investments in infrastructure, specifically for emerging contaminants. There are billions of dollars that are available through the bipartisan infrastructure law that will help communities upgrade their drinking water systems with technologies that will remove PFAS. Now, just to unpack the bipartisan infrastructure law a little bit, it's known as Bill. The bipartisan infrastructure law provides $9 billion to invest in drinking water treatment systems impacted by PFAS and other emerging contaminants. And EPA is currently working to ensure that states, tribes and localities get their fair share of this federal water infrastructure investment. They recognise that the water systems that are regulated by this action are not responsible for the presence of PFAS in their source water and EPA state that's why the roadmap includes other regulatory actions to get upstream of the problem and to hold polluters accountable. This is another reason why I have interspersed US EPA's developments with the episode that I had discussing PFAS litigation with Boston attorney John Gardella. You mentioned in to me that the environmental justice issue is picking up considerable steam in the US specific to PFAS. I wonder if you could just talk about the EJ movement. Absolutely. So another big thing that happened actually just in January of this year by the EPA in the United States was they put forth an environmental justice plan as well. And the EPA's definition of environmental justice is making sure that there's fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of anything like race or color, income or anything with that respect, with respect to developing, implementing and enforcing environmental laws. So what they're really trying to do is two things in the big picture. The EPA is trying to make sure that all classes and people of any background in the United States receive the same degree of protection from environmental laws. And they're also trying to make sure that all people of any background in the United States have a voice through public hearings and actually can participate in some way in decision-making when the EPA is considering passing new environmental regulations. And that is playing out already with respect to PFAS. In your email to me, you said poorer communities are disproportionately impacted by these pollution issues. Is that the case when it comes to PFAS? Yes, I would certainly say that there's evidence for that, and it's what the EPA is particularly concerned about. You know, in the United States, as I'm sure elsewhere uh, across the globe, many industrial areas, the people that are living around those areas are more from disadvantaged backgrounds, and it's those types of communities in particular that the EPA is concerned about and wants to make sure that the history of ignoring those types of communities or not giving them as much cleanup efforts as other communities have received is sort of reversed and that they do get their due attention. And even with respect to PFAS, the EPA, of course, as we just said, doesn't have any enforceable limits yet, but they're already holding and they've already hosted a number of public comment sessions with respect to PFAS. And 
and these are avenues for people who represent people in environmental justice communities or the citizens themselves to comment and weigh in on why there is a need for very strong and very strong enforcement of any PFAS limits that are uh, enacted by the EPA with respect to drinking water. And we've seen that throughout all of these meetings so far. Once the limits are set and enforceable, I believe that the EPA is signaling that it intends to look to those communities first, you know, higher on the list than ever before, certainly, for their enforcement actions for PFAS. The bill also includes a total of $5 billion in fiscal years 2022 to 2026 for the emerging contaminants in small or disadvantaged communities grant program, which focuses on addressing emerging contaminants, including PFAS, in drinking water served by public water systems in small or disadvantaged communities. EPA recognises that communities across the country need relief from PFAS contamination in drinking water. That's why one of the pillars in EPA's strategic roadmap is focused on remediation. The bill provides an unprecedented level of funding dedicated to addressing PFAS and other emerging contaminants. Ensuring that disadvantaged communities benefit equitably from this historic investment is a key priority of the bill. Now, the funding will help states address PFAS and emerging contaminants, target resources to communities most in need of assistance to ensure that no community is left behind with unsafe, inadequate water. Now, the EPA requested a letter of intent from states and territories regarding this funding. Of the eligible states and territories, EPA received 55 letters of intent and has since announced the combined grant allotments for the financial year of 2022 and financial year of 2023. They've produced a three-page memorandum which names the 55 states and territories that will receive this funding and also states the amounts. And I've put a link to that information also in my show notes description tab of my Talking PFAS homepage at talkingpfas at omni.fm. Now, here are just a few amount that have been announced. $169 million to California, $85 million to Colorado, $52 million to Alabama, $52 million to Florida, $46 million to Ohio, $42 million to Arizona, $37 million to Michigan, $25 million to Wisconsin, and $28 million to Minnesota. US EPA emphasised in the webinar that no actions are needed by states or water systems at this time. When the rule is promulgated, EPA anticipates that public water systems with PFAS above the enforceable MCLs will be required to either install treatment or take other non-treatment actions to reduce PFAS levels in their drinking water. The agency has found that all of the best available treatment technologies have high removal efficiencies and can achieve concentrations below analytical detection limits. Now, EPA's analysis on drinking water treatment technologies is available in the proposed rule supporting documents. EPA state that while the technologies discussed can remove PFAS, the technologies can also generate waste residuals as a result of the treatment process and that will ultimately need to be managed. The agency has published an interim guidance that is available online regarding destruction and disposal of PFAS and PFAS-containing materials and is looking to update that guidance in the near future.
Additionally, the agency has prepared a supplemental cost analysis that estimates an additional increase of 30 to 61 million per year if water systems are required to dispose of PFAS treatment media as hazardous waste. Under the Safe Drinking Water Act, the EPA is required to conduct an economic analysis. It's a complex set of analyses that can generally be broken up into two major components, benefits and costs. Now, with regard to the benefits component, the EPA state that the benefits represent the avoided damages or losses in human well-being that would have otherwise been experienced without any regulatory action. There is a couple of paragraphs I'd like to point, like to read out with regard from the webinar. With anticipated national benefits, EPA has quantified the health benefits that are expected from the proposed rule, which includes reduced cases of kidney cancer, heart attacks, strokes, developmental effects. EPA has also relied on the toxicity assessments for PFOA and PFOS to inform the quantified benefit analysis. EPA estimates that the annualised quantified benefits to fall between 908 million to 1.3 billion per year, depending on the discount rate. EPA also made a highlighted point that the agency also expects significant additional benefits beyond those that they were able to quantify from other health effects. And they also go on to list those, and they are immune, developmental, cardiovascular, hepatic, carcinogenic, endocrine, metabolic, reproductive, and musculoskeletal. And EPA said it was important to note that these non-quantifiable health risk reduction benefits are anticipated to be substantial. For the cost component, the agency evaluates the expenses needed to comply with the drinking water regulation, which includes public water system costs associated with monitoring, installing and operating treatment technologies and administration costs associated with informing consumers of violations as well as other record keeping and reporting responsibilities. EPA state that they rely on the best available science and peer-reviewed models to conduct the economic analysis and ultimately the administrator of the EPA has determined that the benefits of the proposed regulation justify the costs. And if you want more detail on the cost and benefits, you can look at the webinar or the EPA website. So the public comment period on the proposed PFAS National Primary Drinking Water Regulation, the clock started ticking on March 29 and it finishes on May 30, 2023. And the final PFAS National Primary Drinking Water Regulation promulgated is anticipated in December 2023 and the effective date is anticipated in December 2026. Again, it's well worth watching the webinars that EPA has put up there. They go into much more detail than I can possibly do in the podcast today. Also on March 21, we'll just discuss your last article there. PFAS circular exemptions movement grows. Can you please explain what that is? C-E-R-C-L-A. And then briefly what that article is about and why it's important. 
Yes, the CERCLA law stands for the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, CERCLA. It's also known by its sort of more colloquial name, the Superfund Law, which is the one that we had talked about in the beginning of the podcast. So CERCLA is the same thing as Superfund. And I guess what's significant about the article you mentioned, Kayleen, is just that there is a growing movement or effort by certain industries that are extremely worried that they will be targeted if the Superfund designation of PFO and PFOS pass. They'll be easy targets for sort of enforcement action and will be on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup costs. So as I mentioned in the article there, specifically so far, it's the water utilities, waste management companies, and liquid terminal companies that are concerned because they know that they have, perhaps not even through their own fault or through anything that they directly did, but they have significant PFAS pollution concerns on property that they own. And they know that if the CERCLA law, the PFAS law passes for PFO and PFAS, that the EPA will almost surely immediately target them. What they're arguing to the White House at the moment is the cost would be so enormous on our industries that you need to find a way to have exemptions created under the law such that we will not be targeted. Regarding this federal law, in your article, you talk about sites that were previously investigated and declared Superfund sites might now need to search for PFAS, PFOS and PFOA. Is that correct? Yes. In the U.S., we call this reopener scenarios. So as you said, Kayleen, you know, let's take an example, a landfill with waste, right? A waste management company owned that, perhaps for various contaminants like mercury or arsenic or something like that. It had previously been designated a Superfund site and the EPA had forced them to clean it up at the cost of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. They, everybody thought, case closed, we can continue on with life, the site is no longer an issue. Not so fast because once the PFO and PFAS are designated under this CERCLA federal law, the EPA can go back to that same site and say, well, wait a minute, we never tested for PFO and PFOS. We're going to do it now. And if they find it, they can reopen the site, redesignate it as a Superfund site, and again, uh, go after the waste management company for cleanup costs, which could again be quite high, depending on the scope. So for this CERCLA law to result in a reopener, that is a Superfund site that now has to investigate for PFOS and PFOA, the EPA would first have to designate PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substances. Am am I correct? 100%. Yes, absolutely. Given everything we've discussed today and the increasing litigation and regulatory action that is taking place in the US regarding PFAS, what would be your parting advice for businesses, companies that either manufacture PFAS or use PFAS in their process? I guess I would say, you know, not only educate yourself about what is happening in the various states and at the EPA level, which is, of course, incredibly important because it's going to impact how you as a company uh, need to act in the future and the standard that you would be held to, but also figure out and definitely spend the time to understand perhaps your legacy Uh, issues, as they are called, you know, prior to any enforceable limits or state laws that may have gone into effect, what was your use of PFAS like? And what might be your footprint on not only the environment, but uh, if you're a consumer goods manufacturer, impact on human health and 
you know, just circling back to everything we've talked about today, all of these regulations sort of focus on those two things, environmental pollution and the costs associated with cleanup, and then the potential for harm to human health and the, you know, potential litigation that can come from that. So you'll never understand your full scope of risk unless you understand not only what you're doing today, but what you've done in the past. Um, and then I guess my final advice would be, you know, there's a lot of uh, good uh, sound advice behind figuring out if you are using PFAS today, whether you need to find a substitute, uh, whether it is a PFAS type that has clear effects on human health or not, or whether it's still under debate. Um, but if there are substitutes, I always say make sure that you're not uh, replacing with something that we call a regrettable substitute, one that might be another chemical or another substance that either now or down the line is going to have similar issues to PFAS. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I highly recommend people go back and listen to that whole episode 33. There is a lot that I left out. The next episode of Talking PFAS is a discussion with an Australian-based remediation company, OPEC Systems, known outside of Australia as Epoch Enviro. They have designed a new method for removing PFAS from water. They've taken their ideas successfully, first from the aquarium to the bench to the field and now carried out successful field trials in Oakey, Queensland, Australia and Telgay, Sweden. I'll be talking with Managing Director Pete Murphy and that conversation will be published tomorrow, Wednesday. Feel free to post links to today's episode on your social media or wherever you wish to share it, but please remember all information in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for republishing permissions at talkingpfas@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.